Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian. And we're both Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 19th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes, or they happened a really long time ago, or there's just not enough information for a full episode. We have a plethora of failures that we want to tell you about. Into the triple digits of failures. In fact, the list keeps growing. I don't actually know the last time it was into the double digits of failures that we want to talk about. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And giving and giving. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads for now at least. It's like failureology light. This week's mini failure is about the DOT-105 railcar chlorine release. Yes, another train one. Choo-choo! On August 27, 2016, around 8.26 a.m. Eastern Time, a railway car in New Martinsville, West Virginia, sustained a one-meter-long crack in its shell after being loaded five or six hours earlier with about 81,000 kilograms of liquid compressed chlorine at a pressure of 450 kilopascals. Also important to note, 81,000 kilograms was the maximum allowable load for the tank car. Pressure rating was much higher though at 3,450 kilopascals. The temperature of the liquid chlorine was minus 22 degrees Celsius, which is again typical for this application. I assume, not knowing too, too much about chlorine, I assume they have to keep it at that temperature to keep it a liquid. And that, well, we're going to get into what happened, but when the chlorine left the tank and was exposed to atmospheric temperature, which was much warmer than minus 22, then it it becomes a gas. It no longer stays as a liquid. I, I think that's how that happened. The other factor might be the pressure that it was under that kept it at a liquid. Or likely a combination of both. Yeah. The loading personnel who had just finished moving the tank car forward about 30 meters heard a loud bang as the shell of the car failed. Plant surveillance video shows a yellow-green chlorine vapor cloud spreading quickly in the vicinity of the tank car. Those are both not good things to happen to your railway car. When it goes bang and then gas suddenly starts escaping, not good. Yeah, that's what I always love to see in my tank cars is poisonous gas escaping from it. Nicole has a giant collection of tank cars. Yeah, of course. They're part of my rail collection. Nicole Railways. Coming to a town near you. The chlorine gas leaks over a two and a half hour period and it leaves a large vapor cloud which migrated south along the Ohio River Valley. So here's the thing when this chlorine starts leaking, you really have no option but to let it leak until it's done leaking and all the chlorine's escaped you you can't go up and try to patch it while it's leaking for one that's very very difficult i mean you'd have to weld plates on it to get it to to seal but then also the chlorine is poisonous and harmful to the skin and it's not safe so that's why they just kind of Honestly, they just kind of left it to leak and made sure that everyone was clear of the cloud so that no one else got hurt. And they kind of just let it all go because they didn't really have any other choice. When the chlorine gas was leaking, one of the employees who had been loading the tank notified the guard station and a chlorine release alarm was initiated. 
Other railcar loading equipment was shut down and the area was evacuated. Like I'd mentioned before, they, they kind of just got out of the way of the chlorine gas and let it do its thing. Within two minutes, and then again over the span of two and a half hours, as Brian mentioned, several gas sensors near or south of the point of release recorded chlorine concentrations above the levels that the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health deemed as immediately dangerous to life and health. The levels measured also exceeded the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA's, acute exposure guideline, predicting the general population would experience life-threatening health effects or death, which, I mean, I certainly don't want death with my train cars. I feel like most people would want to avoid long-term health effects and death, especially from a chlorine gas release. It sounds like one of those things that, you know, there's going to be chemical burns. It would burn your esophagus and your lungs as you inhale this gas. It seems like not a fun time at all. No, I used to work at a pool when I was in high school and we had to be really, really careful when we had to shock the pool if there was a, let's call it a biological incident. And you had to be really careful because if you splash the chlorine and you got splashed back on your clothes, then you had bleach spots on your clothes. You kept clothes in your locker that were meant for that activity because you didn't want to keep ruining new clothes. So like Nicole mentioned, there was some elevated levels of exposure uh, to the chlorine gas. And there were eight people that were treated for chlorine exposure and significant vegetation damage occurred south and downwind of the release. A neighboring facility reported damage to stainless steel piping, tanks, and operating equipment, as well as damage to vehicles. So this this chlorine gas did some fairly significant damage if it's damaging steel tanks and vehicles and equipment. Like this is not something that you want to be around or inhaling. Well, we're not talking bare steel. Like we're talking stainless steel, which is typically fairly corrosion proof. I realize chlorine isn't necessarily a, a form of corrosion, but... We're talking about about steel that is much less susceptible to damage. So it that was impressive. That definitely caught my attention. Yeah, and fortunately, by early afternoon, the chlorine plume had dissipated. So let's talk about the tank car real quick here. So the tank car was built in June of 1979, and it had a stub sill underframe design, which had been known to be prone to defects such as cracks and buckling. So this is not an unknown issue for this design of tank car or tank cars that are produced in this era. So this was common enough that in 2006, there was a safety bulletin about the tank. And in some instances, these defects led to the release of hazardous materials. So this safety bulletin came out 10 years before this accident happened. So they definitely had a lot of time to make some corrections and they didn't. The tank design, as Brian mentioned, stub sill underframe design, it included cradle pads on each end of the tank that attached to bolsters and steel rails. So if you imagine the tank as a cylinder laying on the ground, the bolsters are like bookends on either side that prevent it from rolling over. So they're on the long way and they prevent it from, from tilting side to side. And then the steel rails are what attach the tank car to the, the rail mechanism, which of course allowed it to go down the tracks. The inboard end of the cradle pad is near the middle of the tank, so these cradle pads don't go the full length of the tank. They kind of just sit on, I guess, the third on each end, so that middle third doesn't have any any pad under it. And so on the inside of the pad, near the middle of the tank, is where this leak occurred, and it was in the weld where this cradle pad was secured to the, to the tank itself. 
Now, in an effort to prevent a leak, the tank car had been inspected of January 2016, so a few months before the accident, for interior corrosion and also to double check the shell thickness. So this tank had been in in service for several decades, and so I do think this was good to check. And they did find corrosion pits across the bottom of the tank shell. The tank then underwent approved repairs, but since the tank wasn't due for its 10-year inspection, which would have happened in 2020 or four years later, the inspection didn't include an evaluation of the structural integrity of that stub sill underframe, that cradle pad, the bolsters, the bookends, and etc. And so those weld terminations were not looked at as part of the 2016 inspection. And I get the need for 10-year inspections. And I think when it's a brand new tank, you know, a 10-year inspection is reasonable. But when you're talking about a tank that was built in the 70s, I think 10 years between inspections is a bit longer than is reasonable. I think you have to kind of bump that up to every five years at least uh, because stuff like this is going to slip through the cracks. Yeah, like maybe if it hit a certain threshold, say 30 years in service or 20 years in service, the, you know, the service inspection timeframe goes from 10 years down to five years. I know that happens in in other industries that, you know, once you hit a certain threshold, then your inspection, you know, time period or time between inspections goes down quite a bit because you're already at a high end of the design life cycle or you've exceeded the design life cycle and you're allowed to keep using it as long as it still meets design criteria, but your inspection frequency goes way up. Yeah, or, or, you know, even if when they did the interior corrosion and shell thickness inspection, If that inspection revealed certain things, it would lead to additional inspections of the exterior of the tank or some of the welds. You know, I don't, maybe they don't need to do a full inspection every five years, but if they do partial inspections, depending on their findings, they, they dig deeper. The other thing is, you know, they knew, they knew in 2006 that this, well, they had a bulletin in 2006. So they knew well before then that there was an issue with this type of, of rail car construction and you know, I think that also should have led to to additional inspections. So because they didn't do that, they missed a really significant crack. And so in August of that year, that undetected crack propagated and the presence of the stress, which were induced by the the repair that was done in January for the corrosion pits that they found, caused that that crack to spread. And unfortunately, the, the leak occurred and they lost all that chlorine gas. They put a bunch of people at risk, destroyed a bunch of vegetation, and eight people were injured. It, it, but all completely avoidable, as is the way with these episodes. Yeah, so like Nicole has talked about, and I've talked about a little bit, the probable cause of this was undetected pre-existing cracks along the inboard end of the stub sill cradle pad the propagated to failure with the changing tank shell stresses during the thermal equalization of the car after loading with low temperature chlorine. Making matters worse, like we've talked about, was the insufficient frequency of inspection intervals that missed that existing crack. The low fracture resistance of the steel used in the tank car and the presence of residual stresses from the corrosion repairs and heat treatment in January before. So all of these contributed to this crack eventually cracking um, and releasing all of this chlorine gas. Despite all of these issues that are known from the safety bulletins, this failure and other failures that occurred, they're still using pre-1989 tank cars that have known construction defects. And they're using these tank cars to transport hazardous and toxic materials, which in my opinion, is really problematic because it's one thing for this to happen, we'll call it in the middle of nowhere. It's another thing for this to happen while you're driving through a city. So, you know, 
this is something that I think needs to be overhauled and looked at better to prevent these types of things from happening again. So there was a couple other safety issues that I want to talk about. The inspection, maintenance, and repair instructions used were applicable to non-pressure tank cars, which this was not. So the repairs they did in January of 2016 were meant for a non-pressurized tank. This was very clearly a pressurized tank, and so they didn't follow the right procedure. And the technicians had tried to stress relieve the repaired surfaces with local post-weld heat treating, which means that they essentially heated up the steel in an effort to to relieve some of the stresses, which just made that existing crack that they didn't know about even worse. And the federal bodies required that inspection intervals were 10 years, which we've mentioned is way too infrequent for a tank of this age. Even though the tank was inspected and repaired in 2016, the process, as we know, was not thorough enough to recognize the defects and prevent this from happening. This, like every failure we talk about, was completely preventable and completely avoidable. And, you know, we talk about This podcast is about engineering failures, and of course, those are important, and those are kind of where we focus our attention on the show. And I've talked about this before, that maintenance is just as significant. You can design anything you want. If you don't have a plan in place to maintain it, it's not going to last. And so I think this whole process really needs to be overhauled and improved to keep people safe. Yeah, that's something that we see you know, time and time again, like Nicole mentioned, that a lot of failures could be prevented by better maintenance or better maintenance intervals or more frequent inspections. Um, and it's really unfortunate where something like this does happen. And, you know, fortunately, nobody was was killed in this. There were eight people that were injured. And again, I think it's completely preventable. So there you have it. Old rail cars, ineffective testing internals, and incorrect repair procedures led to the release of 81,000 kilograms of chlorine gas along the Ohio River Valley. It's pretty clear that safety wasn't a priority at this time, and it's important that regulations be tightened to mitigate risks. Thanks for listening to this mini-failure episode. For regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts, or check out the dedicated RSS feed for our Patreon subscribers so you can get all of your podcasts, including our bonus episodes, in your favorite podcast app. If you're having trouble getting that to work, please reach out and I can help you set it up. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. There's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.